You're listening to We Can Do This, a podcast by the National Consumers League. We talk through the issues of today with the figures who have paved the way for social and economic reforms and those carrying on the fight for an equitable tomorrow. Your host for this episode is John Brailt, Vice President of Public Policy, Telecommunications, and Fraud at the National Consumers League. Hi, everybody. Uh, I am really excited to welcome uh, our special guest, uh, Professor Jay Kennedy. He is the assistant professor at the School of Criminal Justice, uh, Michigan State University, Go Spartans. And he's also the assistant director of research at the Center for Anti-Counterfeiting and Product Protection. Uh, Hi, Jay. Welcome to the show. Hi, John. Thanks very much for having me. Thanks a lot for being on the show. Um, For those of you that don't already know uh, Dr. Kennedy's background, um, he is uh, one of the leading voices uh, and and thought leaders in America when it comes to counterfeiting. Uh, He uh, has been, uh, in addition to his uh, role at Michigan State and at the uh, Center for Anti-Counterfeiting and Anti-Counterfeiting and Product Protection, um, he's also been uh, published in dozens of peer-reviewed articles for academic journal- journals and other publications. Uh, uh, he still teaches classes, um, which I'm sure was something we can talk about uh, how, how, how that went in the uh, COVID time. Um, but I think the reason that we are really excited to have you on today um, is uh, just uh, you know how much consumers have over the past oh, 18 months now since the uh, since the, the pandemic really took hold how much they have embraced uh, online the online world like sort of e-commerce in particular uh, I know I have seen statistics that say things like uh, the kind of growth that we've seen in e-commerce in the past year due to covid would have taken five years to achieve that kind of growth if we hadn't been in this this kind of unique unprecedented time. And while that raises all of uh, kinds of uh, unique questions and, and issues for consumer advocates like me, I think one area that I'm particularly concerned about, and, I, and, and I'm glad you're here to talk to us about this today, uh, Jay, is the opportunity that this has given for fraudsters. So at Fraud.org, we hear from consumers all the time uh, about uh, being victims of, of all kinds of scams, everything from lottery scams, to phishing emails, uh, to, uh, to robocalls. Uh, but interestingly, the one type of uh, complaint that we've received that's been at the top of our list for years and years has always been uh, consumers who have experiences buying merchandise online, uh, people who uh, encounter websites that uh, either steal their, their uh, information or what they get back uh, when they buy products isn't what they ordered. Um, and, and I think that all of that ties into sort of why we are so uh, so honored and interested to have you on the show today. Um, so, uh, uh, Dr. Kennedy, you know, I, I kind of rambled there a little bit, but would you agree that sort of the, 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 the COVID and this, these past uh, 15 or 16 months um, have really kind of changed how we look at e-commerce generally and uh, counterfeiting your area of expertise in particular? 
Yeah, John, you know, you're, you're spot on when you talk about the numbers that have changed and the ways in which the pandemic has shifted consumer behavior and the, the way in which we buy products. Um, the growth has been exponential. I don't think that anyone really appreciated how the pandemic would have shifted um, the move from physical commerce to e-commerce um, in the ways that it did and in the areas that it did. I mean, we I guess we all could have anticipated that with home goods and you know office supplies maybe or convenience items, we would see an uptick there. But we've also seen an uptick in personal goods and healthcare and people going online to buy pharmaceuticals and things like that. Um, the, the growth has really, really been staggering. And it's something that we don't think is going to go away because, as you hinted to, uh, it was growth that we were already expecting to happen. We just weren't looking for it for a number of years to come. Uh, and so it's it's likely going to stay. There were a large number of people who went online to buy items for the first time ever during the pandemic. And I think they found that it was very convenient, very easy to access a, a wide range of products. And they're going to stick with it, um, which is not necessarily a bad thing until you start talking about the risks of product counterfeiting. Um, you know, counterfeiters did not take a, a nap during COVID. Uh, they did not humble themselves and think about the greater good of society while the world has been facing this pandemic. They've seen it as an opportunity. And from the very early stages of the pandemic, uh, counterfeiters have taken advantage of not only the lack of knowledge that consumers had uh, about the virus and about what would help with the virus, but also panic buying, which happens quite a bit in crisis situations. Uh, they took advantage of all those things to put products online, uh, to deceive consumers, to put out uh, counterfeit testing kits, um, fake cure-alls, ultimately counterfeit vaccines, which we're still seeing an issue with. Um, all of that to take advantage of the crisis uh, and to um, to victimize consumers in new and sometimes old ways, um, but in ways that are really very nefarious because it touches everyone. Um, in ways that we hadn't seen before. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And you know, you you, you talk about uh, panic buying, um, and and I think uh, obviously, you know, when we think of panic buying in the context of COVID, you know, many of us still kind of remember March and April when like stock up on the toilet paper because it's all going to be it's all going to be out. But you know what? We, but it, then seeing what we've seen here in the in the Washington D.C. area. Uh, over the past week with the Colonial Pipeline shut down, you know, people just lining up to buy gas. Um, and, and, I, and I saw, I heard the other day that 80% of the gas stations in D.C. Were, were, uh, were out of gas. They just didn't have any. It had all been bought up. Um, and, I, and I think that those two experiences kind of gave me a new appreciation for the role that, that consumer psychology, particularly, you know, uh, sort of mass consumer psychology plays in, uh, uh, in in these decisions on on what to buy and 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 how to buy and and you know how much to buy. So it's it's, it's interesting, but um, but let me bring it back to counterfeiting. Um, you know, for folks who who may not be as familiar with counterfeiting as as you are, you know, I, I'm thinking when they think counterfeits, they're thinking of sort of the the, the knockoff handbags that are sold on street corners, or maybe they think of, uh, you know, counterfeit money 
Um, you remember the, the movie Catch Me If You Can with Leonardo DiCaprio, all about counterfeiting. But I, I feel like uh, that's probably just scratching the surface of what counterfeiting is all about. Um, can you give a, our, our listeners a sense on sort of what does this modern world of, of counterfeiting look like um, from where you stand? Yeah, sure. And that's, you know, those, those examples are, are the very normal examples and you're right. They're great lead-ins. Um, and the, the confusion, I don't want to say the confusion, but the reason why I think those examples come up for a lot of people is because that's what we're kind of familiar with, right? We've seen it from either our own experiences or we've seen it on the news. Um, but the world of product counterfeiting is actually much greater. It's um, a much more vast enterprise than simply handbags and counterfeit money. And uh, you know, in in my research, I don't do anything regarding counterfeit money. Uh, it's all counterfeit products, and that's a whole different animal. But even just counterfeit products is a world in and unto itself. Um, you know, the, the handbags and watches and wallets and the, you know, the counterfeit luxury goods, um, that kind of, that, that brings up a bit of nostalgia for people either because, you know, they enjoyed their trip to Santee Alley or Chinatown in New York, or one of their friends had a purse party or whatever. And it, it comes across as a very harmless, um, form of consumerism. Right. Uh, I know it's fake. It looks nice. And I would never try and pass it off as legitimate. But, you know, it's just a, a nice piece of indulgence. Right. Uh, the reality is that whenever we find that there is a product that is in demand, we are going to find a counterfeit. Uh, and so that means everything from pharmaceuticals to automotive parts uh, and supplies down to um, parts of equipment for mining, uh, for mining equipment, uh, the electronic circuits that go into defense department uh, equipment and nuclear submarines um, and child products that you know we buy when we have kids. Um, all of those products are counterfeited and it's all driven by the fact that there is a demand for those goods. And I, I like to use the term mercenary crime when, I, when talking about counterfeiting. Um, and mercenary crime was a term that was coined back in the, the early 1930s um, by a small section, former section of the American Bar Association that looked at crimes that were for profit, right? They had no other motive other than illicit gain. And counterfeiting is one of those crimes. And so when you think about the, the crime of counterfeiting, all you really have to do is think, what product is out there? that if it were sold could produce a, a profit. And that's every product that's out there. Um, I, I had a colleague uh, at the center who's now retired, a gentleman named Rod Kinghorn, who worked for uh, General Motors for a number of years as their head of security. And I remember when I first came out to the center, one of the things that he told me was, uh, one of his lines was, you know, if, if you're a company and your product, you're, you're like, if you're not at risk for counterfeiting, then you don't have a good product in essence, right? Uh, if you have a product that consumers want, you're at risk for counterfeiting because there is a market there for a fake that can come in under price, uh, under the radar screen and take away a bit of that market because people are price conscious buyers in many ways. 
Uh, and so the, the, the amount of things that are counterfeited, um, I think I've ceased to be amazed when people say, Ooh, here's an example of X that's been counterfeited. Like, yeah, I, I can, I can see that people want it and there's money to me to be made in it. So it's going to be counterfeited. Well, what, what leads somebody to acquire sort of counterfeited goods? Uh, you, you talked about sort of the, the, the purse party as sort of like a, uh, and, and, or that, you know, people, might view it as a sort of a harmless form of, of consumerism. Um, you know, are, are they, are they, do they just want the appearance of luxury without the price or do they even know that they are buying a, a counterfeit or is it something where, you know, I, I think you talked about sort of automotive parts. Would a, would a, would a, uh, uh, an auto mechanic that wants to save on parts, sell me something like a, a real set of brakes, for example, but in fact, it's real, it's counterfeit, and they're just going to pocket the difference. Um, what what leads people to, to sort of acquire these goods in the first place? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's, um, you know, the answer to that question is, is one that helps us think about the counterfeiting market from the consumer's perspective. Um, and we generally talk about consumers in two different camps, which helps us identify why people would buy these goods. And in one camp, we have the, the individuals we call the complicit consumers. These are people who willingly buy counterfeit products. Uh, and there's a range of different complicit consumers. Most are who we think about, as you mentioned, right? They maybe want a luxury product and um, they don't want to pay the price uh, or they feel like they can get value or they can be a savvy shopper uh, by paying a lesser price for a good that looks like the legitimate. So in some way, they want an, an, an item that they can pass off as authentic um, without having to pay the price for the authentic good. And this really takes advantage of the fact that, one, as humans, I think we're all pretty good-natured people in that if someone is wearing a really, really expensive purse, nine times out of ten, we're not going to question them on whether or not that purse is legitimate. And even if we did, do we really have the skills and the acumen to be able to determine ourselves whether or not it's legitimate? And if we do, why would we do that, right? Um, so you got the complicit consumers who buy because you know they want to own this item. Uh, you have other individuals who, you know, they may not necessarily go out looking for a counterfeit, but they're not going to pass up a really good deal. And so the cues are there that this might not be something legitimate, but um, their desire to have the item makes them overlook all those cues that would say, this is something that's not genuine. That generally happens with a product that we don't think is going to harm us. The third group of consumers, uh, or I guess two and a half since I mentioned two initially, but that last group of consumers um, are the people who are just duped. Right? You're going out to buy a legitimate product. You want to buy a legitimate product. You go to the, you take your car into the shop. Uh, you ask to have new brakes put on. You get your car. Your mechanic has said he's put on new brakes. Uh, and lo and behold, there are counterfeits uh, on, the, on the car. Those consumers don't go out looking for a counterfeit. Someone has sold them a counterfeit because that seller has realized there's an opportunity to make money. Uh, and this is these are the true victims of counterfeiting schemes, right? They're the ones who are taken advantage of by people whom they trust or places that they trust. Uh, they're looking to buy the legitimate item and they get taken advantage of. 
the complicit consumers that I mentioned initially, right? They're the ones who they kind of know what they're buying uh, and they go after it. Many of us, we don't know uh, that we're not getting the real thing. Well, you know, I, I'd, I'd like to talk to you a little bit more about uh, about sort of this third group you talked about, or two, two and a half, the sort of the duped consumer. Um, you know, it's 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 one thing when you're duped into buying, uh, say, you know, luxury goods or something like that. It's another thing when you're buying, say, uh, as your example, you know, brakes that you don't know are counterfeit and that might be dangerous. Um, or, you know, I know that you've done a lot of work on counterfeiting of, of pharmaceuticals, um, and I, you know, by their very nature, counterfeited consum- uh, pharmaceuticals don't go through the kind of regulatory processes that you know we all take for granted to ensure the safety of the medicine. Um, let's talk about sort of uh, 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 sort of those those threats to life and limb from from counterfeiting. Um, how, how is that? How is that different? Let's say in pharmaceuticals, for example. Yeah. Um, so now you get down to the things that really keep a lot of people up at night, right? Um, while there there can be harm that can come from, you know, counterfeit athletic apparel or handbags or something like that, um, the risk is relatively low. Now, when you talk about pharmaceuticals um, and the the you know, the ingestion or the injection in some cases of counterfeit pharmaceuticals, there's a number of different harms that can come. Um, the first one can be, and I guess best case scenario, is that you get, instead of an injection or some type of, you know, medicine that you're looking for, you get a, you know, a chalk pill or saline, you know, a saline solution. That's going to be harmless. Um, you're still being denied the medicinal benefits that you're looking for from the actual pharmaceutical. So there's still a harm that's being done, but there's not a harm necessarily that's created by that counterfeit that you're taking. Uh, there are some items that uh, kind of fall in the middle. They've got some active ingredient. Uh, and so you may get some benefit, but we've also seen cases where individuals were given counterfeit um, pharmaceuticals that were diluted or adulterated. Um, they had some minuscule amount of the active ingredient and the individuals became resistant uh, to that that chemical makeup that ultimately would have benefited them had they gotten it in full strength dose. Uh, and then you have pharmaceuticals, uh, counterfeit pharmaceuticals that can cause serious harm or even death. And we've seen that happen um, across the world, particularly in developing world nations, but across the world, uh, people dying because they have consumed uh, counterfeit pharmaceuticals. This is a constant concern for the manufacturers of counterfeit pharmaceuticals, uh, uh, for governments, for law enforcement, uh, for many healthcare providers, because as consumers, we don't know how to discern in many ways legitimate from illegitimate. Um, and, and so it makes it very difficult to to really protect ourselves, uh, aside from the sites that you know we may go to uh, but even then, if we believe that it's legitimate and it's not, um, it's tough to know uh, whether or not it's legitimate. And so the harm that's posed by those in counterfeit medical devices are the same uh, is quite substantial. So let's let's let me drill down a little bit more into that. So uh, one of the things that you know we hear a lot about is that uh, the price of medicine is just so high that consumers just can't afford it. You know, you hear horror stories about the people who 
are getting charged, you know, thousands of dollars for, for basic medication like insulin, right? Um, you know, for those people, if the choice is between not being able to afford the medicine or being able to afford something that may or may not be what they actually think it is, but maybe it could work. I mean, it's how, how is a consumer to know? I mean, if they're in the, these sort of impossible situations, and am I oversimplifying this? Is, is, is this sort of like person who really needs this and just needs to get it more cheaply somebody who is a target of counterfeiters? Yeah, unfortunately, you're not oversimplifying it. Um, best The best examples of this come out of Africa, um, where um, in, in other developing world nations, but typically many nations in Africa where we've seen the hard uh, examples of this, um, where the healthcare infrastructure is um, less is is not very stable, uh, drug prices are high and incomes are relatively low, and so people will make the conscious choice to buy a counterfeit product, hoping that it has some bit of the active ingredient because that's the only thing they can afford or it's the only thing that they can get access to. And I, I wish that I had an answer for that problem, right? Um, I wish that I could say, drug companies lower your prices. Well, you know, that's not necessarily the answer, right? Because there are a lot of things that drive up the cost of medication. I wish that I could say, governments do a better job uh, of developing healthcare infrastructure that brings, uh, you know, decent pharmaceuticals to your patients. Well, that's great, right? But you know, instability, um, you know, regional instability, conflict, um, lack of federal resources or governmental resources—they they impose challenges there. Um, there are situations like that where individuals will make the conscious choice because that is the best that they can get, and they hope that they get something. Now, the counterfeiters don't care. Right? They don't care that there are individuals who are putting their health at risk because um, they can't afford anything else. They'll still put whatever they want into those pills. Um, it's a very lucrative market for them. Actually, it's one of the best markets for them because it is direct revenue for them. They're not fighting against the legitimate companies to try and displace real medications in the supply chain. They have consumers who are coming directly to them. Um, and it is one of the largest challenges to disrupt, particularly when we have individuals, consumers who willingly and knowingly buy, say, a counterfeit pharmaceutical, hoping that it has some benefit. They realize some turnaround in their, in their health status or they get some benefit from it. Now their, their reticence to buy a counterfeit in the future goes down substantially. Right. Uh, they may they may even sing the praises of the counterfeits because, hey, here there is someone who's making a drug that we can get access to. It's not big pharma or, you know, government that's keeping you know, these things from us. Um, we should have access to these 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 knockoff or these off brand drugs, as I may term them. Um, it's a it is a substantial problem when it comes down not only to decision making, but also coming up with a a way to redress that problem. Well, let's. Let me shift gears a little bit on this. Um, you know, how are consumers obtaining these counterfeit goods? You know, or we, we started off our conversation by talking about how e-commerce is really supercharged uh, or become supercharged during uh, COVID. 
Um, and you know, we know that we, we see sort of eye-popping numbers about uh, you know how much how many goods are being sold on uh, marketplaces like eBay and Amazon and Shopify and others. Um, but we also know that that those are platforms that host millions of sellers. Some of them are selling legitimate products. Some of them may be selling counterfeits. Um, you know, what is the responsibility of, uh, of, of the platforms for keeping counterfeits off their sites? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's one that, you know, we, um, we, we struggle with quite a bit in terms of finding a balance. Um, you know, there's several pieces of legislation pending that we'll, we can talk about a bit later, but um, the responsibility of the platforms really is to do their best to ensure that one, they are keeping identified bad actors off of the sites. These are individuals who knowingly uh, who they know, the, who the platforms know, have committed these types of crimes before, keeping them off of their platforms, um, being active in searching for counterfeit goods and illicit postings uh, on their on their websites. And that requires a lot of collaboration with law enforcement and brand owners. Uh, and so that requires the platforms to be open to that. Um, the platforms have a responsibility to be responsive to consumers. Uh, consumers are some of the, the foremost people to tell you when something is wrong. Uh, and being responsive to that is definitely the responsibility if you're going to make money uh, off the consumers who who, um, who patronize your platform. Um, sorry. And then platforms also have a responsibility to ensure that they are working with law enforcement and brand owners to deal with counterfeiting incidents that they identify on their platforms. So bad actors will get on who are maybe unknown to the platform. Uh, but once the platform realizes that something is going on, there's a requirement to gather, or I think there's a requirement to gather and share data so that prosecutions can happen, takedowns can happen, uh, that records can be kept of these actors. Um, and all of these things come at a cost. But if your model is to earn revenue based upon the you know, uh, third parties acting on your platform, sharing information, um, it is your responsibility to ensure that um, that you are doing that record keeping, that you are spending those funds to protect your consumers. Well, I, I guess that begs the question then. Uh, you know, um, is is this actually are, are all of these funds and resources that that the platforms are putting into fighting counterfeiting on on the platform? Are they effective? Like, do do we? Is it working? Um, there have been a variety a variety of responses across the different platforms. So we talk about e-commerce holistically, as you know, all the platforms generally and social media. I'll throw in there as e-commerce. Um, but the reality of the situation is that each of the platforms has taken their own. Uh, kind of unique approach. Some are doing better than others. Um, some are effective, uh, I would say. There are, are, are several efforts out there by platforms um, that are starting to produce results. Uh, some of them we have to kind of wait for a while and see what the data flesh out to see how effective they are. Um, but irrespective of what is kind of effective now, 
the one thing that platforms need to be doing, and and I don't know if they're doing this because it's not one of those things that they regularly share with the public, um, but one of the things that they really need to be doing is developing ways to be proactive in this fight. So all the data that's gathered from the takedowns that they do, from the requests for takedowns that they get, uh, the lawsuits that they file, any activities that they do around the ways in which sellers, uh, illicit sellers go to market, all of that information has to be kind of used internally to start thinking, all right, where's our next step? We know that once we take these bad actors off the platform, they're going to try and come back here again because as you mentioned, and as we talked about at the beginning, e-commerce is where everything is going. The counterfeiters are going to come to the consumers and try and bring their wares. And the platforms have the responsibility of trying to stop them. And understanding how the counterfeiters operate, being cognizant of the fact that they will change their methods, um, and being ready to address that adaptation is a big part of what they should be doing. Um, you know, I, I could call out a couple platforms by name, uh, given what they've done. Um, but you know, I, I'm sure that it, it's easy enough to find out. There are a couple platforms that are really leading the field in terms of what they're doing to not only address the counterfeiting problem, but also to work with brand owners and law enforcement and, and industry groups to help brands protect themselves. There are other platforms that are well behind the curve. Uh, and on which you can very easily find uh, prolific numbers of counterfeit products. And in some cases, the platform's algorithms actually help the counterfeiters because they direct counterfeit products to consumers. That's, that's really interesting, um, uh, particularly the, the, the part about, about algorithms sort of directing people to, to these products. Um, I, I hadn't really thought about about the, that particular role, I you know, obviously had, had heard about this sort of cat and mouse game that's constantly getting getting played, but actually actively directing people to to these these counterfeit goods is um, scary. It is. It is scary. And if I can give a real brief example, uh, I was as part of my research, I just kind of go on a variety of e-commerce platforms and look for products. Just you know. To, as a self-educative thing. And I was on a platform and I found several listings for counterfeit handbags. Um, and it was very clear that these were quote unquote replica or as good as the genuine items um, products. And so I, I'm not a brand owner. I can't verify that they were counterfeit, but they had all the cues of being a counterfeit. Um, I looked at the items, obviously didn't purchase them. And uh, a couple of days later, received an email push notification uh, from the platform saying, hey, are you still interested in this item? And so, you know, that wasn't the platform like someone sitting down punching into a computer, but their algorithms are set up to follow, obviously, what I'm looking at. And if I didn't make a purchase to prompt me, maybe I'll make the purchase once I get the prompt. That works for legitimate goods, but it also works for the illegitimate goods, and so um, that's that's a problem. Well, you know that, that that brings up an interesting point. You know, as as a as a consumer advocate, I I am paid to think about sort of you know what are what are the incentives that are in the marketplace uh, that exist to try and get companies to do you know quote unquote the right thing. Um, you know, you know. When you talk about, uh, we're talking about platforms, 
you know, these are often platforms that exist. They make their money not on, uh, or sometimes I guess they do. They make their money on on a percentage of the sale of the good, uh, but their incentive is to push volume through the system, right? That that's you know, getting more people onto the platform, buying and selling, is is good for their business model. Um, so I, I I imagine that that sort of creates a tension between people who uh, the, the sort of the, the, the bean counters who want to sort of make as much money and, and, and have as many sales on the platform as possible. And then sort of the people on the other side who are saying, wait, 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 we need to do more to try and, you know, control what's getting put onto the platform in the first place. Right. Uh, and, and by the way, we need you to invest a couple million dollars in people to help us with that. Right. Um, so I guess that the question, if, if I'm correct in sort of how I'm looking at sort of that tension, um, then are the incentives in place to, uh, to, to, to get platforms to actually uh, take counterfeiting and, and, and fighting back counterfeiting seriously? Uh, and if not, is, there, uh, is that market failure? Is there a role that the government needs to play? through regulation, uh, you, you talked about some of the bills that have been inter- introduced in Congress. Um, you know, uh, so I'll, let me stop there. I think I teed up, I, I thought that was going to be one question. I teed up about five. <laughs> so so uh, feel free to take them in, in, in any order you want. Sure. So let's talk about the, uh, the incentives first. Um, and I think you're exactly right when you talk about that tension um, with the, the revenue model and the way that the platforms work is as you mentioned, volume, right? Sales going through. Um, that gets met with a, I guess, kind of a tangential tension of what is our legal responsibility and liability um, to stop counterfeits going on. And I would say that the platforms that are at the leading edge of their anti-counterfeiting activities are the ones who have said, beyond the legal requirements, what is our social requirement? Uh, and it's almost bringing back that term corporate social responsibility in some cases, right? Um, of what, sh- what ought we be doing to stop these things from getting into the market? And so um, I don't know if we're talking about it straight from a uh, the revenue generation model that pushes e-commerce platforms forward and makes the stockholders uh, very happy at the end of the year. Um, I don't know if there's a way to create an incentive that would lead them to say, um, let's slow down the pace at which we bring on new sellers and the pace at which transactions happen and the pace at which um, consumers are able to get their goods from these third-party sellers. Uh, All the incentives will work in the opposite direction. And so um, at a certain point, you have to say, okay, now is there an incentive that we're not really quantifying? And that is, What's the reputational incentive? Um, what is the the disincentive that is uh, provided by lawsuits uh, and legal action that's brought against us by either consumers, um, the government, or brand owners who feel that their rights are being violated? Um, right now, many platforms are operating under the safe harbor provision of the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. Um, I think that's going to go away at some point in the future. Um, I, I would argue that it needs to, 
Um, but there's been some, again, some good work by some other platforms. But you know, if you take the fact that there are liabilities there and look at what those costs are, um, that revenue model may not look as stable as it did before. Um, now, uh, so we're talking incentives and disincentives there. The, the issue with those types of incentives is they're very tough to quantify when you're talking to the bean counters, right? Um, it's very easy to quantify sales and your margins on sales and sales of certain items. It's very difficult to quantify in concrete terms that you can put into, you know, a, a calculation, your basic ROI or an NPV calculation on, you know, what the cost of a brand owner's actions will be. Or, um, you know, you look at the very complex returned goods system. Right. Uh, you know, we, we've already seen talk about changes to many platforms return good systems where, you know, if it's below a certain item, they don't even bring it back. They just issue a credit and the consumer can do whatever they want with the item. Um, that's a big challenge when it comes down to counterfeit items. So, yes, the consumer may get their money back, but that item is still out there. Um, in terms of whether the incentives are correct, I kind of think that that, well, I don't want to say kind of think, I really think that that depends upon the maturity of the market, the e-commerce marketplace with regard to its, um, uh, its anti-counterfeiting activities to date for some marketplaces, uh, where it is just blatant and obvious and very easy to find counterfeits, um, or individuals who are even violating the terms of service for some of these specialty um, e-commerce marketplaces, e-commerce platforms, um, you know, there need to be some some very strict measures, I believe, put in place. Whether that happens from a regulatory standpoint or, um, you know, dare I say, an industry self-regulation uh, perspective, um, I'm not sure which one is best. I'll talk about regulation in a minute, um, but the correct incentives really need to match the activities that are going on on the platform. Um, now, okay, so I'll jump to regulation. Um, when it comes to regulation, is that the right incentive? Um, I would say if the regulation is written appropriately, it can be. The challenge that we run into with regulation and with taking a a strict legislative approach to it um, is that that regulation is much more stable. Uh, it creates much more um, issues of inertia than uh, the counterfeiters and their activities. So passing a law or putting in place a regulatory standard today may meet the issues that the platforms and consumers and brand owners are facing today. But quite honestly, with the speed at which e-commerce is changing, with the speed at which counterfeiters are adapting, next month, that legislation may be outmoded. And so if we require platforms to do uh, a set of things that we believe will mitigate uh, or substantially reduce I'm not going to say eliminate, but substantially reduce the threat uh, that's posed by counterfeit products on their platforms. That mitigation may work in the very short term, but counterfeiters are going to quickly, quickly adapt. Legislation won't adapt as quickly. And so the right legislation needs to be one that prompts, incentivizes in a number of different ways, platforms to do things that leverage the strengths that they already have with access to data, data collection, 
right? The algorithms, the very sophisticated algorithms that they use to look at consumer behavior and to market to consumers, to leverage the use of those activities to develop solutions that fit within the, uh, the context uh, of counterfeiting as it exists at that time and allows them to be able to be one, entrepreneurial, so they can grow, uh, try and get ahead of the curve, but also to be much more responsive without fear of having to meet a set of standards that are now outmoded and outdated. We all are familiar with the, the idea that, and I, and I see this all the time in the tech space, this, this well-worn phrase that says, you know, the, whatever law Congress is going to pass will be obsolete the minute the, the, before the ink dries, right? And that's what I'm hearing from you talking about sort of maybe how Congress is looking at this today, that they're kind of looking at the problem that face, they face today and what are solutions to address that problem. But would, would that, am I, getting, am I hearing you right on that? Uh, in many ways, yes. Um, and I, I think one of, the, one of the reasons why is because there may be a bit of a disconnect between um, what the, the proposed legislation is trying to do and what it may actually do in terms of targeting um, aspects of the problem in terms of mitigating risk. Um, there are elements of the, of the acts that, that I think are good. Um, but I think we need to be very realistic about what it is they will actually do to affect um, the structure and the, the opportunities for counterfeiting. Um, namely because uh, they, they don't address consumer decision-making or opportunities for consumers to buy products. Um, all right. Uh, if, if you have you know, options as a consumer, um, you're going to make those choices based upon a certain set of factors. Uh, and I know that the bills are trying to work so that the only options that consumers have are legitimate options. Um, but the ways in which counterfeiters are adapting their behavior makes it very difficult in some cases um, for that legislation or actions like that uh, to be effective. And a part of it is because the counterfeiters are really smart at what they do. Um, they're really good at what they do. Um, and, you know, so for example, when you have a product listing that's showing just a generic handbag online, um, but people get an Instagram message or a TikTok or some other direct message through social media that says, hey, go on this platform, look for this generic purse. When you buy that, you will actually get this counterfeit luxury item. That's tough to stop. And so, you know, it's it, that adaptation is something that as we dig through the data, there may be patterns that are able to pull out that. Um, you know, the focus on, um, on recordation in the way that it is from the, the current legislation may not be able to get to now, not again, not saying that the, you know, we should just write off, uh, the legislation that's being proposed. Um, but maybe have a bit more of a in-depth conversation about what the actual outcomes may be and what we're trying to affect. Uh, so are, are there particular pieces of legislation that you're looking at now that you think on balance would move the ball forward in protecting consumers? Or, uh, or, or, and, 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 and uh, as opposed to that, are there ones where you think, you know, good intentions, but the way it's, uh, it, it's written, um, is, is not the way we should be going. 
Yeah, so there are several um, variants of the Informed Consumers Act that are coming out at the state level that uh, I have not had the chance to look at deeply. Um, uh, despite the fact that I'm in criminal justice, I'm not a lawyer, so I don't uh, don't get into a ton of the legislation. But um, as I look at the, and I have dug into these, uh, the Informed Consumers Act, which I know was recently brought back up, um, the Shop Safe Act, and the Santa Act, all three of those bills were proposed last summer to fall um and covid kind of put and you know everything that was happening with the um uh with the the elections and everything put um uh, put a stop i, I think put a, high, put a stop to everything but when i look at those three pieces of legislation the main thing that they're driving for is transparency for the buyers so you know it's it's mandating that e-commerce platforms do um, a better job of gathering information about who the sellers are and providing that information to the consumers. Um, and I am definitely all for that, right? Transparency in, in any regard is definitely a better thing. It's a, a better thing. The, the question uh, that I have from a practical standpoint is the way in which the act mandates that it be done. And, you know, kind of the, the loopholes uh, that are in there. Um, th by requiring, so for example, the Informed Consumers Act um, has a requirement that official, uh, that copies of official government IDs be submitted by sellers, that the platforms keep a copy of those and verify that the identification is legitimate. Um, verifying that a piece of identification is legitimate from you know a the 51 different jurisdictions in the United States can be difficult in and of itself if you're a platform um, but now what if what about if it's someone from you know halfway around the world um, and you can say well you know you need official documentation from a government agency we've seen document forgeries before right? Um, and yes, the act says that the platform should take every reasonable, you know, step, every reasonable measure to verify it. But if there's the expectation that the platforms are verifying the, um, legitimacy of the individuals who are selling, but those sellers are, you know, using nefarious purposes as they will to hide their identity, to lie about the documents that they have, where does the liability end? It may end legally for the platform, but socially for the platform. And my big worry, um, and this is in general when we talk about corporate regulation, my big worry about that is you are going to have platforms out there that will see any piece of legislation as the benchmark. All right. It automatically becomes, the legal standard automatically becomes the minimum ethical standard. And doing anything above that requires some individual or entity within that business to argue for why they should spend, as you mentioned, millions of dollars on this endeavor when they are not legally required to, and they are not exposed to liability by, um, you know, by doing, by not doing so. You know, there's, there's, there's legal liability. And what I've heard you say is, is that you, let's wave a magic wand and say tomorrow Congress passes a law that makes uh, platforms legally liable for counterfeit goods on their, uh, on their uh, uh, platforms. What I'm hearing you say is that that, uh, that could actually be 
somewhat counterintuitively counterproductive to the goal of of uh, of providing you know of incentivizing companies to meet this uh, sort of social liability standard or ethical responsibility uh, sort of standard that I think you talked a little bit about earlier. Um, if if that's if if that's what I mean, if what I'm hearing there is correct, right? How how can I mean how can consumers put pressure on platforms, for example, to meet that? Is 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 it simply voting with your with your pocketbook, or is it is it going to your legislator? Is it making noise on social media? Like, what is the what is the role of consumers themselves? And as a consumer advocate, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of, of, of the people that I talk to every day in, in sort of fighting back against counterfeiting generally and dealing with counterfeits on platforms in particular. Yeah. So, um, so if we did wave that magic wand and we're talking about things from the consumer perspective, and I know that the, um, uh, the, the lawmakers, who, the congressmen and women who put together um, these several bills, they spoke with their constituents and consumers about what it is that they want. Um, I think there needs to be a, a larger forum for dialogue where consumers can give feedback about their experiences with platforms when it comes down to counterfeit goods, because some of those experiences are really, really bad. And this is where I see a place like, um, you know, the um, uh, the uh, Consumer Product Safety Commission or the FTC, a role for them um, to really moderate that discussion and to have some type of administrative authority where they can sanction platforms that are essentially deaf to consumers' issues. Um, the other thing they can do, as you mentioned, is they can vote with their feet. Um, let's be very honest, right? This is uh, th the platforms exist um, because they are seen as the favorable or the favored choice uh, of where to get products. It's convenient. They've made it easy. You know, there's a bunch of, op uh, of options, right? The, the prices are good. But when consumers start to get victimized, when consumers start to get taken advantage of, the question of safety now becomes an issue. And so, yes, you can get this product in two days. It can get here. It's going to be the, you know, the least expensive option. You've got a bunch of options, but there's a 70% chance that it's going to be counterfeit. You know, the consumers who really care, which I'm going to assume is going to be the vast majority of them, if you ask them, the consumers who really care about whether or not they get a fake product or a real product, I think we're going to see some movement or hopefully we'll see some movement where they say, you know what, if there's an alternative, I'm going to go with the safest alternative. And so as a platform, I think you have to be cognizant of that and say, you know, while, you know, the going may be good right now in the future, uh, and who knows how very soon in the future, it could be very, very soon in the future, in the very soon future, there could be a number of platform options out there where they are the safest choice. And consumers start making choices about the safest choices, almost like automobiles, uh, where people did. Now, legislators can mandate seatbelts. That's all well and good. But remember, the, the best safety innovations were out before there were mandates to have it done. And so if consumers are demanding things, if they have a voice to go to the platform, um, if they have a voice through industry associations, through group, groups like yours, uh, or through federal agencies that have administrative powers, 
if they have a voice to tell the platforms what they want, we need to be listening and amplifying those voices as much as possible so that it doesn't seem like to the platform it's a one-off or a two-off or even a thousand or a million-off given the volume of products that go through there. But it's a concerted, coalesced voice where the consumers are saying, these are the things that we expect. And you know, if you don't do this, then we're going to leave uh, or you know, there's going to be regulation that's going to make it onerous for you. Uh, and you're going to have, as you have in every other industry, you're going to have that small percentage that does the things ahead of the curve. Uh, and once the benefits of those things come out, um, then, you know, as a regulatory machine pushes forward, because you know, I'm not naive to the fact that the regulation is coming uh, and it's going to be there. Um, but as we see the, the real adaptations coming that have a benefit that are ahead of the curve, um, that regulatory push is going to follow along with that curve and adopt some of those best practices and standards that work to effectively secure and keep consumers safe. And that's really the lens through which all of this needs to be looked at is what are we doing to keep consumers safe? Well, I definitely think that that's, that is the right lens. I mean, that, that is for an organization like mine, you know, the, 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 at the end of the day, you know, that's where sort of the, the proof is in the pudding. You know, is this, is this making consumers safe? Well, Professor Kennedy, I know we could talk about these issues uh, for another hour, and you've already been extremely generous with your time. Um, I, I, I want to sort of uh, give you an opportunity. Is there research uh, for, from, from you or from the Anti-Counterfeiting Center that we should be on the lookout for uh, on this issue or other issues that, that you're really excited about, that you think consumers might, might, might take some real value away from? Stuff that you're working on or colleagues are working on that we should know about. Yeah, uh, thanks for that opportunity. Um, there are two pieces of research or uh, two research projects that I'm really, really excited about. Um, I happen to be leading both of them, so you know, it, you, you get what you ask for, I guess. Um, <laughs> but uh, one of them is around social media and social commerce, and the way in which interactions on social media are changing people's perceptions, particularly the younger generation, when it comes down to counterfeit products. And counterfeiting becoming a bad word, but reps and dupes being okay. Um, a colleague at the American Apparel and Footwear Association recently put out a, a report on dupes uh, and reps in social media. And this is a trend that we're going to see moving forward quite a bit. Um, but following the changing lexicon that is going on um, as the social media and social commerce trend is changing counterfeiting from a social perspective rather than a technological perspective. And then the second one, we are working right now uh, at the initial stages of developing what we hope to be an every two-year survey um, or an every other year survey uh, of American consumers about their experiences with counterfeit products, both being victimized as well as willingly buying counterfeit products, their perceptions of what the platforms, brand owners, and law enforcement are doing. Uh, and the goal of this project is to be able to turn back around to the American consumers, to brand owners, to law enforcement, to legislators, um, what kind of the pulse is in this country uh, regarding counterfeit products. What are the trends that are going on? And what can we do to help consumers keep themselves safe, but also to help other stakeholders in the fight against counterfeiting leverage uh, what consumers are telling us to be more effective at what we're doing? Either one of those two could be an entire episode of the We Can Do This podcast. Um, but uh, they both sound incredibly fascinating, especially the survey. 
I, I, I'm always a fan of seeing consumer sentiment data, uh, in part because I'm a, I'm a consumer advocate geek, but also because I think it's really interesting to actually, you know, there, as an advocate, I, I, there's what I think consumers know, <laughs> I think consumers think, but to actually see the data from surveys uh, uh, helps keep me grounded. So thank you for doing that research. Um, and, and thank you too for everything you're doing. Your scholarship is, is, is incredibly valuable to consumers um, and the marketplace. Um, and I couldn't imagine uh, have, having, having had a better guest than you on uh, today's episode. So so thank you so much. And, and we'll definitely uh, have you back on a future episode. Well, thank you, John. I really appreciate you um, giving me the opportunity to come on here and speak. And uh, to, the, to the NCL, really appreciate the work that you do uh, to advocate for and protect consumers. And uh, I look forward to speaking with you again and sharing some of the results of this research. Thanks for listening to We Can Do This, a production of the National Consumers League. We Can Do This is a member of the District Productive. If you liked what you heard, make sure to subscribe on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, or your preferred podcast app. And hey, tell your friends about us. We love feedback, so give us a rating or review. You can also talk to us through the National Consumers League's Facebook page or on Twitter at NCL underscore tweets. That's NCL underscore tweets. Still can't get enough? Visit nclnet.org, that's n-c-l-n-e-t to learn about our rich history in fighting for consumers and workers' rights, our current leadership, our education and advocacy programs, and to discover ways for you to make a difference in the world. Remember, we can do this. Thank you.